This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Top of the morning to you. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Dr. Matt, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Man, have we got a great one for you today. If you have a, uh, let's say a teenager, or if you have a young adult maybe that lives in your house, or if you have any child or grandchild that you think might become a teenager or a young adult, this is the show for you. We're going to be addressing a, a bunch of different issues today uh, throughout the three-hour program. Remember, the goal of the show is to help you find the good in the world and to give you the tools you need to live healthier lives, to live longer, to love stronger, and to lead your, uh, your legacy and to be able to, to create a purpose in your life. Today, we're going to be talking about three things. Student credit, the kids, my friends, the kids are getting farther behind. When you think about it, man, they're getting, they're getting backed up with credit the minute they get a credit card. Crazy statistics. Fewer than 10, 1 in 10 students even know their interest rate on their credit card. When they, and only about 10% actually pay off their entire credit card bill in college. So even in college, just with their brand new credit cards, they're already getting behind. So we're going to be talking with an expert, uh, somebody here actually from Brigham Young University. Bill Welsh will be joining us in a few minutes. He's in charge of collections on campus, getting the money from these kids. And he's going to give us some secrets, some tricks, some ideas that every parent needs to know when it comes to student credit, how to get ahead, how to... Um, you know, how to, how to train your kids so they understand the importance of credit. On the show yesterday, we talked about just what's happening in a very big way to Greece and their debt and how that, that's caving in and, and actually impeding their ability to do other things. When we don't have credit, our, our hands wrapped around our credit issues, it's going to suffocate us in a variety of ways. So we'll be talking about that in hour number two of the program uh, public shaming. The interesting thing about the United States, we tend to lead uh, the world when it comes to shaming people. We find it to be apparently a really good deterrent, but it may be backfiring. For example, in California, you may hear of people shaming those that are wasting water, right? So they might videotape somebody's sprinklers that are spraying in the street and then put it on a, you know, on some website. You could actually tweet it out and put it on a shaming website. Now, sure, we shouldn't waste water. We're in California, whatever. Shouldn't waste water. Get it. Good point. Is shaming the best way to get people to change? It's backfiring, folks. It actually may be leading to violence. It's leading to suicide in some cases. It's leading to a lot of different uh, a lot of different things, and uh, we're going to be talking with an expert on that. And then in hour number three, we'll be getting into how you help your kids find their career. I've been talking to my son recently about, well, you know, what he should do now that he's going to college, trying to figure out what he wants to do. And I, I think back to how I figured out what I wanted to do, and it, it was basically by trying 20 things. And after trying 20 things, I settled in on one. Actually, I settled in on five. It's pretty messed up. 
we're going to give you some tools on uh, how to help your children uh, find their career, kind of guide them a little bit toward their career. Boy, wouldn't it be great if you just knew by the age of 10 what you wanted to do? Well, most of us don't. So we'll be giving you some tools on that. Plus, I got to thank you and celebrate. Happy Sugar Cookie Day. This is an important day. In the 1700s, a group of German settlers arrived in Pennsylvania, and by combining sugar, butter, and eggs, a little vanilla, some baking soda, bada-boom, bada-bing, sugar cookie was born. And today we're celebrating it. So if you're listening, or if you're our boss, Don Shaline, pick up some sugar cookies on the way to work. We'll be celebrating with sugar cookies. Hey, uh, thanks for joining us. But before we go anywhere else, we've got to go to the sweetest thing of all. Oh, boy. Sugar cookie herself. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy Aiken in the headlines. thank you, Matt. Good morning. The Confederate flag is being removed from South Carolina's State House grounds. This after a 13-hour debate and a vote of 94 to 20 in the House last night. After a few more formalities, the bill is expected to arrive on the desk of Governor Nikki Haley, who said she'll sign it into law. That could happen before the end of the day. Here was State Representative Jenny Horn during yesterday's debate. Take a symbol of hate off these grounds and if any of you vote to amend you are ensuring that this flag will fly beyond friday and for the widow of senator pinckney and his two young daughters that would be adding insult to injury and i will not be a part of it the controversy over the flag was reignited after nine black people were killed in a Charleston church last month. A rough day for technology Wednesday. First United Airlines suspended all of its flights for nearly two hours due to what they called a router issue. That's the second major technical glitch for the airline in just over a month. The New York Stock Exchange also had computer problems when trade was stopped for a time yesterday. That company assured the public the issue was not due to a cyber attack. U.S. officials say it doesn't look like the two issues were at all re- Related. Donald Trump has been asked by the Republican National Committee to tone down his talk on immigration. His response? I have many legal immigrants working, but many of them come from Mexico. They love me, I love them. And I'll tell you something, if I get the nomination, I'll win the Latino vote. I will win it. I will create jobs, and the Latinos will have jobs that they don't have right now, and I will win that vote. Meanwhile, another GOP presidential contender, Jeb Bush, said yesterday the government should not give any aid to cities that shield illegal immigrants and that sanctuary cities should be done done away with. This after the fatal shooting by a man last week in San Francisco who had been deported five times back to Mexico and was in the country illegally. General Motors is recalling nearly 200,000 Hummers due to a fire risk. The company stopped making the car five years ago but will honor warranties on the vehicle, a module that controls the heating and air conditioning conditioning motor can overheat and increase the likelihood of a fire. GM says they're aware of three minor burns caused by the issue, but no crashes of the big SUV. Dealers will replace the module free of charge. And 50 years ago tomorrow, Matt, were you alive? Yeah. Okay. How, how long ago? 50 years ago tomorrow. <laughs> no. No, I wasn't oh, alive. Oh, you don't know. The, this was the anniversary tomorrow of the song Hard Day's Night. Oh, really? Released by the Beatles, yeah. And ah. new photos from the band, also from 50 years ago, have been found and are being released. They were taken by Life magazine photographer Bob Gomel hmm. after their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. 
So several of the photos of John, Paul, Ringo, and George hanging out by the pool. And the photographer was funny. He called them the whitest white people he'd ever seen. They took off their shirts and had to put his sunglasses <laughs> they on. They are the whitest no, white people. <laughs> they haven't seen some of us here. Yeah, yeah. You know what's fascinating? Have you ever listened to Through the, Through the Garage Door? Uh-huh. Don Shaline, honestly, and Mark Wait, those two guys, you should hear them talk about like the Beatles. It's crazy. They, they know, know everything. Some everything. It is, it's actually fascinating history because I didn't know half of what went on when the Beatles came to America and how much of a real PR push it was. Huge. It was pretty. It's a, that was 50 years ago, 50 though, that years song. years ago tomorrow, that song came out, yeah. Well, I, I love the pictures of the women going crazy. I'm don't like, you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. But it was that cute little bob hair. What was the haircut called? That the Beatles all wore. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, whatever. Yeah. The Bob? I don't know yeah. what you call it. It's Ben wears it. It's fantastic. <laughs> Looks you, good, ben. I mean, but he pulls it off. A lot of people can't pull that off. <laughs> but when you listen to Don on the program, mm-hmm. you can, the passion of the of what he knows and of the music, you well, love that. The, the, we played that game the other day, and he knew every song. He knows every word, word yeah. to every song. He knows the history behind every song. That's the, that's the benefit of a DJ. Yep. So a lot of these guys were pushing the vinyl was it? It was even vinyl, vinyl back sure, then. Sure, you bet. And I, I sit there and I think I don't know anything. Like Don came in the other day, I was making fun of iTunes because I thought they messed me up, but they really didn't. <laughs> they just uploaded. Have, they, a have new... they sent you an email yet? No, yeah, they're ticked. But um, Don comes in, and he says, "Yeah, you just got to do this and this." And yeah. This. So he, Don's the guy that understood the Beatles, loved the Beatles, knows everything about the Beatles, and still can fix my iTunes. I'm going to go to him then. Seriously. All my boys have moved, so I need some help. He, no, he's the guy. They, they were there to help me. But he'll say no he doesn't know, but he knows. He knows. He fixed it. Hey, guess what? What? Good news. <laughs> so some good friends of mine, uh, Dave and Carolyn Myers, they're, they're the ones that gave me my Fitbit. Mm-hmm. Guess what they gave me? Sugar cookies. No. <laughs> no, but that would be great. They gave me um, uh, an Apple Watch. Nice. They gave my Holy wife cow. and I Apple Watches. So I'm now going to Those be sporting like an Apple Those are your best friends. I know. They're my best friends now forever. <laughs> I mean, really. them something. I used to like a lot of people. They are my best friends. Maybe you need to make them sugar cookies. But you know, what, you know what's interesting? He's also a doctor, and he's a doctor friend of mine. And he, but he's basically – I think it's because he thinks I'm fat um, because he gave me the Fitbit first of all, and then I lost weight. And then that, strength, that increased my plantar issue. Uh-huh. But he then said the, the new watch will help. I'll even lose more with the new watch. I can't wait to see if you can figure that out. I, well, I've, How, you're not wearing it, Oh, though. I started playing. I've got to go pick mine up. He oh. gave me my wife's, and I got her set up. But I played with it all night. Did you? That's why I'm really sleepy. Well, that's what we were talking about yesterday. Those that get the least sleep, yeah. they can't unplug. So no. you're, you're still doing it. Well, that, but the, the difference is it's going to be on my watch. Right. So I don't have to unplug. It's just part of me now. Right. Oh. You know what scares me, though? The stock exchange collapses. United yeah. Airlines collapse, all because yeah. of technology. Yeah. Maybe what's going to happen is I'm going to become so addicted to my watch that my life will collapse. Yeah. You're, not a, you're going to be even more tired than you are this morning. I know. That's not good. I, I think I won't because I'm, I'm going to make a rule where I keep my phone now in the other room. And but I then just you have use... it on your watch, though. What? You can have your watch on, though. Yeah, but I'll have my watch on. But you can't play games on your watch. No. You can't watch Netflix on your watch. No. You can't. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. You can hardly even read the news on your watch. So which one did you get? I don't know. I haven't seen it. Okay. But I got, I I don't know. I got, I'm sure the sport one, because, hello, I'm sporty. (laughs) Why are you laughing? That's so rude, Kathy. that was rude. I'm sorry. Jeez. Ben, do I not look sporty? (laughs) Ben? Ben? 
Yes. That was slow. Slow on the uptake. <laughs> Very slow response. I'm not feeling uh, the love here. Well, you know, I think once you get the plantar fixed, you will be back into running. You'll be in tip-top shape. Yeah. I'll never run again. So is this the doctor that's going to fix your plantar? No, but this is the doctor that would fix my acne if I had any. (laughs) He's a skin doctor. He's a skin doctor. He's going to be on the show quite a bit because he's going to teach us about about sun damage. Uh He's going to teach us about products. Like, do we really need all of these special additives in our stuff or mm-hmm. could we just use like oh, that'd be great you know some soap yeah you know well that's some of the marketing i'll tell you some of the women's facial products you kidding oh, me i know the wrinkle cream and oh, things so expensive i know yeah. i use not them every sure, day not sure it's different than the 4.99 one you get at the it's not at walgreens it's totally not and just to digress uh i whenever i put lotion on i sweat like a pig the rest of the day <laughs> I think it clogs all my pores and my he- I heat up about 50 degrees. You're using the wrong I'm going to ask him about that. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I think it is. I'm using the wrong kind. Well, I want to become his friend because I want up. some technology too. Well, you already have I do. the watch. I, mean, I don't have it you on didn't, today. But today I, I of all days, it. I need See, you to wear it. That's the thing as I forget to charge it. You know, you yeah. just take your watch off and you put it on yeah. well, your you, nightstand and if you don't think of charging it every well, night. Well, you, you know what you do? You just put the charger on your nightstand. I know. I do. That's oh, do a problem. You? I have it right there. But yeah. But yeah, you, yeah. Sometimes I forget just to put it on. It's hard. It's hard. Too many it's a things habit. to remember. You got to start a habit. Good luck. Well done, Kathy. And happy sugar cookie day. Uh, I love a good sugar cookie. Um, here's the deal. Bill Walsh will be, well, she'll be joining us in just a few minutes. And uh, Bill is, he, it's such a cool idea. That's the benefit of coming from BYU because we have this entire community, 20, 30,000 people on campus, and we can use all of those resources to get you the information you need. But Bill is the manager of collections for BYU Student Financial Services, and he's going to come in and tell us the mistakes students are making when it comes to their credit and their finances and some things that you as parents should make sure you're teaching your kids so that they don't get behind, they don't get indebted, and then they don't turn into grease. Come on! We'll take a break. We'll be right back talking student finance and credit right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, while 70% of undergrads have credit cards, fewer than 10% of these college students are paying their full balance every month. Isn't that crazy? Only 10% of college students are paying their full balance on their credit cards every month. Fewer than 1 in 10 students even know their interest rate, their late fees, or their over-limit fee amounts. So this type of ignorance in personal finance is contributing to billions of dollars of American debt and it, that uh, has been, been been compiled over the last 45 years. And with many companies looking at credit reports during the hiring process, it's becoming increasingly more important for college students to not only pay their bills on time, but to also understand what all of this financial stuff means and how, imp- uh, how big of an impact their credit will be. Joining us right now to help us with this is uh, Bill Welsh, the collections manager from BYU Student Financial Services. Bill was a former president and owner of the Credit Bureau of Provo, Credit Bureau of Price, and the manager of Motor Credit Company. So the guy knows his credit, and he knows what's going on with the students uh, around the country. So, Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Matt. 
Great to have you here. And what I'm thinking, Bill, when we talk about this this credit issue, I mean, it used to be that, you know, I guess, I don't know, kids didn't need to know everything about credit. They would show up. I guess we'd, um, we weren't extending as much credit to our youth. But now I, I have kids that are getting credit card uh uh, like what are they called? Inquiries from credit card companies right the minute they're graduating from high school. All these credit card things start coming in, and so is it? Are, are they being? Are they? Are the companies actually like preying on these? Are they chasing down our students? What's going on? Well, <clears throat> that's a good question. I mean, the history of credit in the United States began a long, long time yeah. ago. Uh, and you also raise a, a good issue about how much do consumers know and understand about their credit, especially students. Uh, if I can just give you a really quickly yeah. a little histor- history of it, post-World War II is when the credit that we're kind of familiar with today began. Uh, credit bureaus began in those yeah. days. But, of course, they didn't have the technology to spread the information as fast and as, and as good as they do today. Um, and you didn't have as many consumers in the United States. For example, post-World War II, most banks didn't, go at, didn't look at women as a potential. Oh, that's right. They, yeah, they were trying to target the men, huh? Exactly. But today, under Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Now everyone gets targeted. Everybody gets targeted. <laughs> so both your sons and daughters uh-huh. could be getting it. So uh, – and now to bring you to the present, you've got credit granters who are in business to sell products, goods, services. Yeah. They want to make student loans, for example. And uh, the only way they can stay in business is by doing what? They have to get more They got to get more cards in more people's exactly. hands. Exactly. So they solicit. For, for example, Christmas time. When you go to the uh-huh. stores, you go to the mall, uh, and notoriously a lot of those, uh, those retail outlets would target women, but there are more men that are, that are shopping today. What's the tactic that they usually do? Well, one thing they'll do is so if, if you get a credit card with this, they'll one, – one that you see everywhere, and I think American Express does it, we'll give you a T-shirt. I know people that will just get a credit card for a T-shirt. That's right. Or they give you 15 percent off uh-huh. the purchase. They'll give you – all of a sudden you'll get a really good exactly. discount on whatever you're buying today. But what did you do to get that? You, you fill out, out an application. You've got a line of credit. And a lot of the consumers that do that – don't realize what they just did. Yeah, they just they just basically signed up for another right. line of credit. That's right. And that credit grantor, whether it be American Express, Visa, maybe it's JC Penney. But it's pretty it's free money, Bill. It's free. Well, it's not free. <laughs> it's not free. No, that's especially the thing, huh? if you pay late or uh-huh. if you can't pay off the balance in full. So that's uh and, and not to diss on creditors, they have a right and an obligation and it also makes sense for them to try to go out and get as many customers as they can. There's a lot of discussion on whether or not they should be able to solicit minors, and obviously yeah. there are laws that protect minors, and yet there are a lot of minors that oh. are getting lines of credit. We learn on the show as we talk to all of these psychologists that you know the, the average mind or brain isn't even matured until about 25. So they're getting – Sometimes you've got to wonder if it's still I know, Even then you're like, huh? Uh-huh. Because – but from 18 to 25, so they're no longer a minor I guess after 18. But from 18 to 25, they still don't necessarily necessarily cognitively are functioning at their highest peak anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would totally agree with that. You know, I was a past mission president. Yeah. So I had 19-year-olds. You had a bunch of olds and. And uh, I have to admit, uh, there were some that probably cognitively couldn't do certain things, yeah. but they're uh, they're pretty pretty they're pretty, uh, pretty capable. I think they're more capable this generation than my generation. Well, yeah. Well, and why why do you think that is? I mean, I guess more informed. Well, they are. They have much more information. The capacity to gather the information. They talk amongst themselves. 
that could also be a detriment yeah. to them because yeah. then somebody gets, hey, this is a great idea. Let's go out and do it. Perpetuates itself uh-huh. too fast. And then they find out later about the information. If I could for just a second, let's talk about students then because that's really where I get involved. Uh, One of the most oft-asked questions of me is when they come to my office is how do I establish a line of credit? Yeah. I mean isn't that a weird idea that one of the first things they have to get – our kids have to establish a line of credit. Well, and why is that? Well, because everything runs on that, right? Well, let's – I'm going to make you a creditor. I'm going to weigh my magic wand. Boom. You're a banker today. And I come to you and I'm 19 years old and I want to buy my first car for $10,000, okay? Am I a good risk or a bad risk because I don't have any credit information? It's you're, to me, I get, well, if I'm the you're – you're an unknown risk. Okay, but is that good or bad? Yeah, for me, that would probably mean bad. Okay, it probably is. The majority yeah. of credit granters today – would they'd probably try to obtain a credit report on you and say, "Gee, Matt, you you don't yeah. have any credit right. history." We don't want to necessarily be the first one that gives you a loan. Right. You know, uh, we suggest you get a cosigner. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe then, what does that do mom, and dad. Mom, mom and dad? Mom and dad go cosign. Mom and dad are smart; they won't do that right away. <laughs> right. But uh, so, why is that an issue? Well, because you don't have any historical information, and you could easily just have had uh, a credit line just by getting a credit card. Well, and that's uh, and that's a good point. Usually, I suggest to a student. You should at least have one line of credit, like a credit card. In their name. In their name uh, most of the time. But again, to get a credit card, a lot of credit card companies, they don't want to be the first Interesting. ones. So under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that was enacted in the 70s, uh, which was mainly written on behalf of women so that women could have the, the line of credit that yeah, they'd help no, establish. Right, yeah, right, because they, they were stuck without it. Most of the creditors uh, still today will say, well, get mom and dad to put you on as an authorized user. Mm-hmm. And there's a code that goes on the credit report. Well, the authorized user is actually somewhat meaningless. Let is me it, explain yeah. why. Because let's say you're my son. Yeah. Okay, I'm really old now. No, so you're, you're not. You look great. Okay. And so uh, and I say, you know what, son, Matt, let's go to the bank. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to authorize you on my Visa card. Well, by authorizing you, that doesn't mean you're obligated for the debt. Yeah, so okay. you're not getting the credit. You don't it. really get yeah. the credit. And the worst part of it is what if the old man here – pays late on the account. Oh, then it pings you too. It's all your credit history. You're one of the line. But in reality, in credit risk scores, they can't consider that because you're not an obligor on it. You don't have to pay anything for it. So it's really a a catch-22 situation for individuals, particularly students, Mm -hmm. as they begin to try to get credit. They can, however, get like a secured line of credit, like a secured credit card, a lot of the banks around here cater to students. They know that many yeah, of the Yeah, it seems like the, the banks around a university w- would probably be more willing to risk exactly. for that student. And they do. And they have proven uh, they've got good data that shows that it's been a good risk and they're fine. By the way, revolving credit cards are the highest type of risk that you can give. Are they? Yeah, because they're unsecured, yeah. they're totally discharged yeah. from bankruptcy. You mentioned the percentage of students that are not paying on their student loans. It's even higher where there are students that are in debt and they have credit card debt. They're not paying on their credit cards mm. as well. See, this is a big – it really is a big deal. And to think that – I mean, I, that's, I never thought of that. My parents signed – co-signed on a car. And then, I mean, I guess that built my credit. And you were probably they, – they were probably – either it was your mother or your yeah. father – was the maker. Uh-huh. You were the co-maker. Yeah. You have joint obligation. 
Yeah. Uh, sometimes people misunderstand that, misinterpret it, that they believe, well, then the maker has the primary responsibility. No, both have the exact same Do they, responsibility. So if I, have a ch- if I have a son, would it be better for me, instead of the loan being under my name on the car and have my son paying me for his car, would it be better that I just let him take the loan out and I co-sign and yes. he gets the credit for yeah, it? Yeah, the reason for that is in the first scenario that you gave – uh, there's no credit history yeah, going to be he's reported not. under him. And would that be a bet? Is that a safer bet than a credit card? Uh, I mean, is probably. It, is it? Probably because, again, the car loan is probably a higher amount of credit. Uh-huh. Uh, it's an installment line of credit for a set period of time yeah. versus a revolving account that's probably a lesser amount. And to do it in the way that you suggested, if you were to co-sign for your son, one of the best – guarantees, if there is such a thing, is that your son would pay you mm-hmm. maybe a week before the due date. So you set his due date then. Yeah. You get the money that way. You're sure it's always being paid. That's One of the biggest mistakes co-signers make is that they just believe that the account is being paid. And right. most credit granters will not contact the co-signer oh, until it becomes significantly delinquent. And then you're like, and then you're son, yeah, you're get stuck. over here. Yeah. We've got to talk. Right. We're speaking with Bill Welsh uh, here from BYU Student Financial Services. He's the collections manager. He's teaching us everything we need to know about credit and your student. Uh, stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back trying to figure out What's the most effective way to teach our children how to manage their credit and their finances? We'll be right back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, most of us probably don't have as much information or knowledge about debt and credit uh, as we probably need, let alone our students, our children, right? So joining us today is Bill Welsh. He is the collections manager for BYU Student Financial Services. But you know what? Interestingly, and in a way uh, to our benefit, he he has incredibly uh, an incredible depth of experience in national credit kind of issues and bureaus. He served on various national boards of directors, including uh, as the Medical Dental Hospital Bureaus Association and the Associated Credit Bureaus Inc., and was actually chairman of that uh, association in uh, 2000. One of the things we and he now works for Brigham Young University. Um, we wanted to ask him uh, when it comes to these these students, Bill, what what should we as parents make sure they understand when it comes to credit and financing and, and their money? That's an excellent question, Matt. Probably the most important thing is how will students finance and pay for their, for their tuition? Yeah. Let's just stick with tuition. Yeah. Uh, BYU, we're extremely blessed because you have the church that helps supplement the cost of that. But it's still a cost nonetheless. Right. And a significantly high number of our students obtain federal loans. Uh, and those loans must be credit reported. And uh, there's no getting out of no, that loan? No. Under the Bankruptcy Short of Reformation death, I guess. Act from 1985, <laughs> most recently 2005, uh, federal student loans and even private student loans are non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. Hmm. So uh, for the first uh, the first thing that, that if I were a parent with a, a child in school today is that, look, if mom and dad can't help you, son or daughter, 
How are you going to pay for it? Well, go see a financial aid counselor. We have excellent financial aid yeah. services here at BYU. Talk to them about what's available. Try to get grants, Pell grants, which you don't have to. Oh repay. yeah. But if you have to get Stafford loans, subsidized and unsubsidized loans, what does it mean to be subsidized? And the, oh, the government takes care of the interest for that period of time. Unsubsidized, oh, you're accruing interest. Uh, when do you have to pay it back? The, one of the things that I see that happens a lot, Matt, is the students start school, they're freshmen. Last thing on their mind is how right. they're going to pay back four yeah. years oh, from yeah. now, let alone four days Well, plus they'll be really rich then because oh, they'll have their degree absolutely. in you know, botany. They'll be filthy rich, right. but they'll also be deeply in debt. Totally. And so they need to understand that as they go through that process, they should continue to monitor the amount of debt that they incur. And if in the interim they can have a plan to start repaying it sooner rather than later mm. because in a subsidized loan, no interest on That's it, right. start paying it off sooner right. if you can. Uh, I think they also need to understand that they have to keep track not only how much debt they get to borrow for school but credit card debt. Mm. So that's uh, all this additional expenses, just getting exactly. your books if, if you're not including that in your student Well, debt. and then they get married. Uh-huh. Uh, how much more is it going to cost? Or a they, trip. Let's Hey, every, all of my friends are going to Tahiti. Yeah, great place to go. <laughs> Gotta go, yeah, that's right. That'd uh, be obvious. I'd love to take it. You'd love to go. Right. But they need to understand that. And, and sometimes uh, parents can help where they finance it all. Or there are grad plus loans where the parent themselves signs for it and, and they're, they're on the hook, if you will. Uh, so the, the most important thing is knowledge is power. Yeah. Be aware Be of what you're doing as you go through this process and how much debt you're going to owe at the end. For federal aid, understand the process for consolidation loans. For example, at BYU, we have some funds where we give loans to students in the law school, in the Marriott school. Uh, University of Utah has like about 80-plus funds. Wow. And they make all sorts of loans. We do background checks. We do credit reports. We credit report the information. Big difference in those types of loans are they can't be consolidated. Oh, you boy. might get multiple types of loans from the law school. Yeah. But they can't be consolidated. You can't bring them all into one payment, one At least check. right now yeah. we don't. Whereas on federal aid, they can do that. Yeah. Um, and each of those are lines of credit that are credit reports. Well, and we, I think we assume that the federal government wouldn't keep loaning us money if, if, you know, if we shouldn't have it. Well, here's but the interesting thing. Is the federal government doesn't check your credit to see if you're eligible to get the loan. <sighs> so how does that make you feel as a taxpayer? Federal government's using our money. Yeah, throwing it out there. And they're giving it to all of these students. You know, during the recession, what was the thing we heard from the yeah. administration? Go back Try, to school. Get back to school. Get retrained. You saw a huge increase in the number of students got de- yeah. student debt. Now they're not repaying it. And nobody ever did anything to qualify those students to see if they could afford to pay it back. Well, it's almost like we moved the banking problem to the student problem, right? I mean, so we were oh, lending yeah. money in yeah. for homes that we shouldn't have been. Well, the student problem, in my opinion, is going to make the mortgage problem look like it was penny ante stuff. Well, this to be, is yeah. huge. Well, and and, huge. and and that. There, there's all this penalty that you have to repay it, but there's not even the jobs necessarily right. to pay Well, or, or else you hear, for example, the Obama administration has been touting somewhat, well, we're going to give forgiveness after 20 years. Hey, come on. I'm the taxpayer that that money that's was right. lent on. That's right. Why, why is all this forgiveness going on there? Yeah. So that's another Isn't that – but it's, it's such a complicated issue and yet a little – or a little – actually a little education up front could go a really – a very long yeah, way. Yeah. And again, that's why I know you've had Paul Conrad on the yeah, show. Yeah. Paul is doing a great job in their financial planning mm-hmm. uh, here on BYU. They've got, he's got professors and other individuals that are involved. 
that are trying to help students be more aware at the onset and throughout the process. And that's important to them. When, when it comes down to it, when you think about it, Bill, so I guess what are the biggest mistakes they make with their debt? The number their one credit? biggest mistake by far is they don't keep track. They're not aware of their overall balance of their overall debt. They're just not watching. Yeah. And it's just grow, if, especially as it's growing. Right. Right. And then they begin, some get into situations, maybe they had to leave school because of medical issues. They get married, they have Uh a child, they incur more debt. And because of the ease or supposed ease of obtaining credit, and that is pretty easy in the United States, they amass much greater debt. And then suddenly it hits them and, wow, I really didn't realize I owe that much. And then they add in the total interest that they're going to have to pay over a period of time. And that's one reason why you see so many bankruptcies that are filed. Yeah. But remember, it doesn't student go loan debt, federal aid at least, and private student loans are non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. So it's it seems like because you're going to school and you usually won't have to pay anything on those loans. So for four years, you're kind of just boiling in the stew. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't know how bad the stew is because you've been sitting in exactly. it. Well, just imagine if you've gone through school for four years – at BYU, our cost uh, of attendance is significantly less than other places. So obviously, your student loan should be less. Yeah. But then you go to postgraduate. And oh yeah. You want to get a, and you want to get a graduate degree, right? There I mean, are ways to obtain federal aid, um, and some of those. Some I've seen some students in debt for one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Oh, I have too, and I've and, and I've I've seen them in debt for one hundred and forty thousand for a job. Yeah. That'll make forty. Right. Right, and you're thinking. By the way, how did that happen? You know, speaking of jobs, okay, and employment, the other things that these students need to understand is that it's one thing to go to school, and maybe you think, "Oh, I'm going to be a lawyer, or I'm going to go to pre med, or I'm going to be a doctor, or something," thinking that those jobs produce a lot of income. Right. But you also have to understand that if you go to be employed by some place, or if you want to be a lawyer, the bar association is going to check your credit report. And if you've been passed due or you've defaulted, you may not be allowed to take the bar. So you could have gone through all of that effort. And now you're past due. Now you're past due. And you have to rehabilitate your credit and maybe you can't. Or you go to a place that uses credit reports for employment purposes. Yeah. And they say, wow, you know, you've got so much debt or maybe you've got some bad credit history that you've got there. You can't get the job that you well, thought you were going to. Think that through. Like there are places now you can't – they're using credit checks for employment. Right. And there, and even social media checks for employment. So you could if – you're, if you're not paying attention in college, yeah, you your social trouble. media and your credit report will prove that you're not – That's right. You shouldn't have the job. When the Fair Credit Reporting Act was written back in the early 70s, 73, 74 – by the way, my father was one of the original witnesses on the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Oh, was Reporting he really? Uh, one of the primary permissible purposes for the Fair Credit Reporting Act was employment and insurance. Yeah, that's it. And yeah. yet you've got people today saying, well, what does it matter how well I pay by debt and the job that you want to hire me for? Well, yeah. what if the bank wants to hire you to be a teller and you're with money all day long? That's exactly right. They don't want you potentially being tempted yeah, by taking that money so you can own pay debt. your bad debt. Uh, same thing in insurance. Insurance companies have long been able to prove with empirical data, that's the great yeah, catchphrase yeah. they use, that uh, the way, the manner in which people pay their debt also seems to correlate very closely to how many accidents they have that's or true. kinds of risks that they are. By the way, let's just talk quickly about yeah. risk scores. Yeah. Okay? 
Uh, risk scores uh, came about uh, maybe about 30 years ago. I know Fair Isaac Company is the one that you know about, but every one of so the that's credit FICO, bureaus, right? FICO, every one of the credit bureaus have their own models. There's hundreds of models out there. So when we as credit, uh, as consumers hear about, well, what's my risk score? That's important to know, but you need to know what your credit grantor that you're going to apply to is using. What they're using, not just some general score. For example, if you're a a bank making mortgage loans versus if you're a credit card revolving account company, the kind of model you would use to make a mortgage loan is probably different and Mm -hmm. is different Hmm. than the model that is used for revolving credit or even a car loan. So as consumers, it's important that we know what our risk score is. But also, what is our risk score as it applies to the type of industry we're applying to? Okay, yeah. That's Man, important. and is is there any difference that you see between like national banks versus kind of a homegrown local bank, community bank, or credit union? It used to be. Yeah. yeah not anymore. Uh, again, when we the, when we and when I say the credit bureau industry created risk scores, it was with the intent that that be a preliminary tool and mm-hmm. nothing but that. Today, it's not that Kind of an evaluative. Yeah. Now, uh, the predictors uh, used, and the technology is very good, but unfortunately, the flaw is is that a lot of the industries, especially back in 2002 to 2008, mortgage lending industries, for example, and underwriters said, this is our score, and that's what we're going to stick with you, either get approved or denied. Um, The flaw with that is is that they weren't taking enough time to go and investigate other points of creditworthiness. Let me make an example of that. Let's say you have two people with the exact type of a, a credit report. They've got 10 lines of credit, same balance that they owe, same high credit, never been past due. Okay, The risk score could indicate that as a predictor, both of them potentially are not going to declare bankruptcy or both of them are not going to become delinquent. What's not in that risk score? Well, what if, if consumer A – just lost his job yeah. yesterday. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. On paper, the risk score looks okay, but if that if that credit grantor doesn't consider the yeah. consumer A really won't have income next month, how are they going to get paid? Totally. And so there there is some, but there are risk scores that can that can do that. But again, it depends. On yeah, the there, you need. It's a bigger picture, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's a whole Fine. picture. We've got about one minute left here, Bill. Talk to us about what. Okay, so if I'm dad. And I've got a child entering the university this fall. What what should I be doing this week, this month, to get him ready? If, if I know the university that my child's going to, I want to contact that financial aid office. I want to gather all the information of the cost of attendance. I want to find out what is available for financing to, uh, the tuition, uh, whether I have the ability to help or the, or the student has to. And then I'd want to help my son or daughter who's going to attend there to set a budget to establish a, 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 a resource and a manner of living and what they're going to do, and then I would want to continue to monitor that. Hmm. Because if the student is away from home, you know, call them regularly. Find out. You don't want to be a, a helicopter mom yeah. or dad, but if you're on the line on some right. of those lines of credit, you, you want to. It's, it's no different than if your, your son or daughter is going to school. You're going to ask them what their grades are. That's right. Are. How are your grades? Well, how's how's your, your health? You know, how's, how's your credit? How's your credit? Well, I love that. And, too, and it's not helicoptering if it's a plan and we're just together yeah. on the plan. Yeah. And they'll awesome. love you for it because later on they'll say, you know what, mom and dad, thanks. That was that That's was it. Beneficial. And they'll have a degree and yep. then you know they'll so be able to support you the rest of your life exactly. the way you've become accustomed. Yeah. Well done. Bill Welsh is his name. Again, collections manager here at BYU Student Financial Services. Man, tons of information, though, when you think about it. But it really comes down to you, parents, and 
talk. Get, open the conversation. Get informed and uh, help your kids build a plan. We'll take a break. Come back, do a little coach's corner on this in just a minute. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's such an interesting thing, this parenting uh, role that we all play. Because you love your kids to death. And, you know, it used to just be a little easier because you were just dad. And and you just say, no, we're not doing that. But when they come to this age of 20, you, you have to start partnering with them on a completely different level. And when you think about some of the biggest mistakes we make, uh, you know, we don't we don't let our kids do drugs, right? We're pretty strong on that. We're pretty clear. We don't let them party. We we're careful that they're not, uh, you know, that they're not being promiscuous, that they're not out there getting in trouble with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. You might you might watch all of that a lot more closely. But do you watch and spend enough time actually teaching them about finance, teaching them about their career? Do you focus more um, time on helping them understand just how to get a job, how to, how to go about you know, keeping a job, how to, how to do what you need to do to succeed in this world? And at what point do you just quit parenting? I don't think you ever do. If, if your child ends up having a, a credit breakdown, guess where they're going to come? They're back, and now they're living in your basement. And so it might behoove us to to actually get on it. And especially if you know you're not very good at the credit thing, if you know that you're not watching your finances closely enough, then make sure that you you teach your kids. And if, if you don't know, make sure that you advise your kids to go find out. That is such a slippery slope, this credit that the and the free supposed money we get with our children and their student loans. Because one semester could put them five grand in debt, right? Plus, they're going to have their own credit card on the side. And if they're not paying off their debt, like, you know, the majority of students aren't fully paying off their debt, then this little $5,000 loan turns into 6000 that they don't even know that they, they don't feel the impact. It's kind of like running into a wall, you know, driving your car and you drive your car right into a cement wall. Well, that's not a problem if you don't feel the pain for four years. Think of how many things can go wrong with you after running into a cement wall and you didn't feel any pain from it for four years. The the dilemma, there's a delay between the impact and when you feel the impact when it comes to student loans, and it could be four years, but in four years, you're going to feel the pain of four straight years of running into cement walls. So we got to do something about it, and we, we need to inform our, our children. And I wouldn't just, you know, bet on the federal government just, you know, absolving everyone from their student loan debt. It's just not going to happen. You're going to, at some point, you're going to pay the piper. And so let's just let's just do what we can. And, and as a parent, it's hard because, like, you know, you've got you're dealing with your own debt. 
let alone their debt, let alone worrying about Greece's debt. Everybody's got debt. So it's it's a modeling thing. We as parents need to step up and become the change, right, as Gandhi used to say. We must become the change we seek in the world. You can complain all you want about the debt of this country, but you want to change that? Then teach your children. You can complain about the debt of the world and how indebted everybody is? Then change your children. Quit talking about it if you're not going to do anything about it. Eh? That's it. Hour number one, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, trying to help you see the good in the world and get the tools you need to take your family where you need them to be. Again, you're in charge of your life and your decisions. We just want to give you the information you need to make the best decisions you can. And again, we can't do the show without you. So you can listen like you are, Sirius XM 143, or you can find us on byuradio.org or podcast. Get it. You can listen to it anytime you want during the day. You can also forward those podcasts to other people that might need to hear what we talked about today. You can do that by just going to iTunes or tune in. Or just, again, go to byuradio.org and look up uh, our podcast. Folks, we're going to take a break, come back, start a whole new hour. And next hour, we'll be talking about shaming and our tendency to shame other people when we don't like what they're doing. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Dr. Matt, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can. Three hours a day to give you everything you need to go take on the world, to take on the day, and to, to basically lead your family to a healthier, happier life. That is our goal. And thanks for joining us. Again, you can't do a show like this without you, the listener. And so we appreciate you being here. Again, you can um, you can find us 9 to noon Eastern Time. And I know... You don't need our help because you got your act together, right? But think of all the other messed up people in your life. They need this help. So today uh, we, we like to – actually every day we like to take on some interesting topics that come out of the news. Um, you know, we want to give you the, the story behind the story instead of just showing you a news story and telling you, well, there's a problem. We'd rather give you some actual – understanding and information for how to fix it. An example, recently in the news, you've heard, uh, you know, you've heard issues with um, the water shortage going on in California and in the West, the drought that's hitting. And nowadays you can, you can actually take your frustrations out on your neighbors. So let's say you've done everything you could to, to cut back on your water usage and your neighbors didn't. Well, what would be the best way to handle that? I guess you could just quietly, you know, steam and be angry and frustrated that they just aren't contributing. Or you could go video their sprinklers and then, you know, tweet it out and put it out and to try to publicly shame your neighbors. That's one way to do it. We see it all of the time. We try, we have kind of a lot of this uh, 
gotcha kind of journalism going on where we might be trying to publicly shame people on weight issues, on their on immodesty. It was a really interesting thing that happened a few um, months ago, about probably about a month ago. Lindsey Sterling, who's a really popular uh, and viral kind of media producer that's on YouTube. She's a violinist and she dances and plays violin and she's got this channel with millions of people that, that watch her stuff. She was on an award show and she wore a dress. Now, this this Lindsey Sterling is an LDS woman uh, and very conservative in, in how she dresses. She's she's very she's just a very conservative person. But she wore a dress that looked like it was a see through type of dress. And um, anyway, it blew away a lot of her followers because they could not believe they could not believe that Lindsay would dress so immodestly. And on her on the, in the Twitter sphere, on her YouTube page, it blew up with all of these people so frustrated, disgusted that their role model would would just dress so immodestly and um, shaming. They just tried to shame her back, guilt her back into submission, I guess. And it was it was really a pretty powerful thing. Um, her dad eventually stepped in and and to her defense and said, look. In that exact same picture where you are looking at her supposed immodesty, which she didn't feel was as immodest as everybody thought. She had a slip or whatever under her dress. Um, she, the dad said, next time you look at a picture like that, don't just look at the dress that's so supposedly immodest. Also look in the eyes of the girl. Look in Lindsay's eyes and see if you can also still see goodness and purity. Don't just start shaming people, right? So when that all went down, um, I I got on this little pulpit where I wanted my people to find somebody that could talk about public shaming because we we do it as a society, and we do it on everything on on our foods. If you're not eating the right kind of foods, if you eat this kind of food, if you do this, if you don't work out, if you're overweight, we we just we just are constantly shaming, making fun of other people. So in a few minutes, we're going to ask Dr. Jonathan Fast uh, to be on the show with us, and he has written a book that talks about how this shaming may be leading to other problems in our society, like bullying, like violence, and suicide. So we're going to be addressing this public shaming idea with a guest coming up in a few minutes. But before we get to that, let's get to our headlines and Kathy Aiken. The debate about the Confederate flag in South Carolina continued on into the night on Wednesday. After 13 hours, the House voted 94 to 20 to remove the flag from State House grounds. Here's State Representative Jenny Horn. I'm sorry. I have heard enough about heritage. I have a heritage. I am a lifelong South Carolinian. I am a descendant of Jefferson Davis. But that does not matter. It's about the people of South Carolina who have demanded that this symbol of hate come off of the state house grounds. 
The bill is now expected to arrive on the desk of Governor Nikki Haley, who says she'll sign it into law. That could happen before the end of the day. The House narrowly passed a change to the No Child Left Behind law yesterday. The new bill will give school districts greater control over evaluating all aspects of their schools and will not allow the federal government to require certain academic standards like Common Core. In the five-vote margin, there was no support from Democrats. The bill now moves to the Senate. Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus has asked Donald Trump to tone down his language on immigration. But Trump continued his talk yesterday, adding if he were the Republican nominee, he would win the Latino vote because he'll put them to work. Meanwhile, Jeb Bush, another GOP presidential candidate, said yesterday the government should not give any aid to cities that shield illegal immigrants and that sanctuary cities should be done away with. That coming after a woman was allegedly shot and killed by an illegal immigrant last week in San Francisco. Anthony Batts, Baltimore's police commissioner, was fired by the city's mayor yesterday. The decision came after the Baltimore City Police Union released a report that claimed the rioting after the death of Freddie Gray was preventable and that the police department's response to the chaos was lacking. A recent study by the George Institute for Global Health reveals that a gluten-free diet doesn't do much for someone without celiac disease. The study says while avoiding gluten is vital for a small percentage of people, those looking for health benefits won't likely find them by going gluten-free. Scientists found that the levels of sodium, sugar, and other nutrients to be pretty similar in both diets, and gluten-free products can be pretty pricey. And Matt, travel and leisure has come up with the top 10 friendliest cities in America. <laughs> you ready for yes. the... Uh, I'm going to give you the top five. Okay. Ready? Five, five friendliest? Five friendliest. Okay. This accord, yeah, according to travel and leisure. Oklahoma City, number five. Really? They have the few few pretensions and ranked least rude and least snobby. Oh, good Very job. good. I like that. Kansas City, number four. It's both affordable and they have good drivers and great barbecue. Ah. Number three, Minneapolis-St. Paul. Not mm-hmm. only friendly, but very smart and super fit. Number two, yes. Salt Lake City. No way. Yeah, we treat visitors like family, kid-friendly, and sense of adventure with great outdoor adventures. And funny part, they added the pastrami-topped hamburger. Oh, yeah. Is that only yeah. here? That's the, that made it sound like this was kind of new here or something. So well, how do you think here. I got this boyish figure, <laughs> this cherub-like figure? And number one. What? Who? Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, yes. They won by making visitors feel welcome and their great music scene and cheery food trucks. What? It's, it, do you notice there's a correlation between food and happiness? Very much so. Absolutely. And apparently nice people and outdoors stuff. Yeah. Oklahoma, that is great. Because yeah, oh, sadly, City. Oklahoma doesn't make a lot of these top Mm-mm. five or ten lists. No. They just say the people were super friendly. That's and, great. Yeah. Least rude. I love least that. Least rude. Now, we can, I'm going to give you the the least friendly, the five oh, least okay. friendly in the next hour. Okay. Yeah. Let's, I can guess. Yeah, I, I know. I guessed right on number one. <laughs> did you? I did. Yeah. I don't the other to... The other four is pretty close, but number one I got. So most people may be able to get it too. That's cool. Good yeah. stuff, Kathy. Man, that's cool. Salt Lake made it. Can't believe it. Hmm. I mean, a lot of them seem kind of rude to me, but I live here. So what would I know? Hey, uh, it's Isn't it interesting? Shaming, public shaming. We do it all the time. When somebody does something we don't like, we throw them out to, you know. I mean, think about that. These people that get five or 15 minutes of fame, but it's kind of the ugly kind of fame. We're not afraid to just beat people up emotionally. So we're going to be talking with Dr. Jonathan Fast about this uh, breaking the cycle of shame. How do we quit shaming 
others. And is there something about the United States? Because for some reason, we're leading all of the polls when it comes to uh, and all of the research when it comes to um, being really good at shaming people. I don't know if that's a category we want to be really good at, but stick with us, my friends. We'll be talking about shaming and its impact uh, on bullying and violence and suicide up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Have you seen any of those viral videos of parents shaming their children on YouTube? Uh, How about uh, perhaps you've seen the one where the father who refuses uh, to publicly shame his son, where he's not going to shame his son. We even see judges now shaming criminals. There was one woman that that didn't pay a cab fare. And uh, she got in trouble, and the judge basically made her walk 40 miles for what she should have paid for, that fare she should have paid for. But uh, it seems like we think shaming is a, is a pretty effective way of, of making people change. You know, kind of some of the gotcha type of journalism. Anything we can do to shame somebody might, uh, might be helpful. But our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Fast, uh, he's done a lot of research on this. He's actually written a book called Beyond Bullying, Breaking the Cycle of Shame, Bullying, and Violence. And he joins us today. He's an associate professor at the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. And he joins us to give us some insight into this uh, this shaming, um, I guess, approach that we use here in the United States. Dr. Jonathan Fast, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Nice oh. to be here. Great to have you today, uh, Dr. Fast. Is Talk about shame. I know it seems like in the United States we're really – we really believe in this concept of shaming. Is, are, we, are we abnormal as a society? Or, or do we do it more than others? Talk about that. Well, I think there are shame-oriented cultures and there are um, not shame-oriented cultures. And we're more of a shaming culture. But I think people all around the world use shame to keep other people in line. And yeah. so this is better understood if we talk about what shame is. Yeah, define that for us. Yeah. So I like to think of shame as involving groups. And there's one thing that people want more than anything, it's to be part of a group, whether the group is simply a couple or a family, um, you know, or a club or a school. We want to be part of groups. And shame is the emotion we experience when we risk losing our membership in the group um, or when we aspire to join a group of a higher status and we're rejected. Mm. So an example of that might be joining some fancy country club and not getting in. Yeah. An example of staying in our family would be, you know, if we commit a crime or in a very uh, orthodox kind of family, if you marry outside the faith, you run the possibility of actually being excluded from the family. And it's considered enormously shameful. That is an interesting way to see it, isn't it? Because then it's it's group oriented. It's your desire to belong and be a part of a bigger thing. Absolutely. And we could say that guilt is the opposite. Guilt is what goes on inside us. So if we have a strong sense of guilt, it's going to stop us from committing a crime. On the other hand, if we don't have a strong sense of guilt, we might commit a crime 
and feel fine about it until it's discovered by other people. And then we experience shame. Uh, I was just looking at an article about Bill Cosby. Yeah. And it might be his experience that while he was involved in these uh, antisocial acts, he was not experiencing particular guilt. But now that it's come out, he's probably deeply shamed by it. Mm. And so in that... I guess that shame is a it's a normal byproduct I guess of of doing something out of sorts but uh that that won't that won't benefit me in getting into or keep or you know it might impact me in my friend group or my relationship group but is shame something that I can also kind of thrust on people Sure and that's called bullying Yeah uh, if you have someone working for you who's not doing their job you can say you know um, straighten up or you're out of work. And yeah. that's a kind of, it's a kind of bullying, but it's not a bad kind of bullying. Um, so I guess we really shouldn't call it bullying. So for example, when a mother tells her two or three year old child that he can't sit at the grown up table until he stops finger painting with his, with his mashed peas, <laughs> that's a good kind of shaming. Yeah. And for an adult, it might be, uh, if you are, drink too much at a party, you know, and you decide you can drive yourself home and you're weaving all over the road and you get a DUI and spend the night in jail. That, again, is a very helpful kind of shaming. Um, so it's, it's useful to think of this as that there's toxic shaming and healthy shaming. And healthy shaming is what keeps us in line as a culture. It's what keeps everybody doing the things they need to do to remain in groups. Yeah. And, and I guess it's just a byproduct. It, it's just a repercussion of how we live, or right? So it's kind of society pushing back or the bigger institution pushing back on, uh, I guess, inappropriate or unacceptable behavior. Right. And then we change our ideas of what is acceptable behavior as time passes. Uh, and so, yeah. So it's, it's almost – it's the institution's way of correcting the individual. Right. And I, I believe in there. Uh, Sylvan Tompkins, who was a, a psychologist who lived a, uh, about 50 years ago, also wrote about this a lot. But this kind of thing is probably inborn in us and probably remains because it's such a valuable emotion in terms of keeping our culture together. Because human beings really can't function in isolation like yeah. some can. In fact, others uh, talk about it. I think Sue Johnson and others talk about how this need to be accepted is, is, you know, one of the universal needs of a human. We want to be included in these groups, and even at the highest level we can. It ensures our longevity, right? That's right. And if we're not, you know, if people who go off by themselves are either religious adepts who are doing it intentionally or people who just can't bear the possibility of experiencing shame. Mm. An example of that might be um, there was a stereotype of Vietnam War veterans after the Vietnam War that they would sort of go off and live in uh, tents in the woods, you know, and yeah. perhaps, perhaps that was because of the shame they had uh, they had accumulated during the war. Isn't that interesting? So, so that's it. And they may have felt that. And then there, there was also maybe talk about this idea. You call it like weaponized shame. Is that part of the toxic shaming? Because during the Vietnam War, there was a lot of toxic shaming going on, I assume. That's right. Because remember, I mean, we've gotten much better as a society about um, about supporting our uh, veterans. Yeah. But in, during the Vietnam War, 
veterans were shamed by the uh, by the dominant culture. Yeah, the, the baby. You were the baby killers. You were the. Oh yeah, it yeah. was really terrible. And and those, I think, those of the baby boomer generation who who were involved in this shaming um, feel very ashamed of so, having behaved that way. I certainly do. Yeah, you know. No, I mean, isn't that interesting? So, but you call it weaponized. It's, it's we're using the shame to actually not just maybe correct and get people to kind of shift toward a societal norm or whatever. We're using it to harm someone. That's right. And the reason why we want to harm those people is because we need to manage our own shame. Interesting. So we shame because we we have shame. Right. We displace the shame onto the victim, and then we beat up the victim as a way of getting rid of our shame. And this, of course, brings us to scapegoating. Yeah. Where we do it in, we do it in groups and we do it as society, as culture. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, we do it all the time, don't we? Like, I, hear, I see that all the time with my clients where a, a partner that's been cheating on their spouse, you know, turns it back on their spouse and blames their spouse for being a bad spouse. Oh, yeah. That's human nature. Yeah. That goes constantly. Um, we love to blame other people. And as a culture, we have groups who are very easily shamed. Uh And those are are the people we pick on. So in a marriage, uh, it's the the other person. Um, As a culture, it could be uh, blacks in America. Homosexuals. And gay. Yeah. I mean, that's so so true, isn't it? And then yeah, and then and some of that just may—I mean, and it's interesting, too, because it could be a very religious-minded person that shames the gay person, and yeah. yet the religious-minded person should still be loving and caring and understanding and forgiving, and yet we also can become—and and by the way, and then it can reverse, right? And with this new legislation, we now see, uh, you know, religious people feeling like they're now being shamed for having religious values. It's— it's really a tool we, we don't even pay attention to, but we could end up doing a lot of harm with. There are two groups who pay attention to it, and these are the two groups that I that a lot of my research, uh, some of my research is based on. And the groups are prisoners and also alcoholics. Hmm. So really the first useful definition of shame work that you find is in the works of, oh, God, come on, what's his name? The guy who wrote... Uh, John Bradshaw, okay. John Bradshaw. John Bradshaw. Yeah, who literally writes about toxic and healthy shaming uh, and alcoholism. Hmm. Um, Donald Nathanson, uh, talking about shame management, calls this uh, avoidance and, uh, and sees alcoholism as a form of avoidance of hmm. shame. They're, just, they're they, just medicating their shame. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly, huh. shame. And I think the way it's managed in AA by uh, publicly telling the stories, the shaming stories, you know, about how they ran over the dog. Yeah. You know, were uh, oblivious to their children is a way of managing the shame because everyone, you know, the thing that people do in AA is they all say, after you finish telling this hair-raising story about your, uh, about your adventures, everyone says, Thank you, Bill. You know that's right. Yeah, yeah. Non-judgmental, accepting audience, and that's the benefit, I guess, 
and we, we got to take a break and we'll come back and get to this. But that is the benefit of if you share what you have shame. So instead of using your shame to be punitive and beat up someone else and, you know, and then shame them, I guess if we can voice our shame, then our then we I don't need to. I, I, a, it'll probably dissipate my shame because I'm no longer holding on to it. I'm just owning that I killed the dog I or I, I'm an alcoholic or I – I mean it's it's powerful if we can just let our own shames go instead of you know weaponizing them and beating everyone else up around us. Interesting right. stuff. I mean it really is. I, I love this topic and I'm so glad you're with us. Dr. Jonathan Fast is joining us. Teaching us about shame, folks. And again, this is everybody. We all, this is a natural human instinct and tendency. So be thinking about it. Do you tend to use shame in how you discipline your family, your kids, in how you in how you try to motivate people? We'll learn more about it when we come back. More with Dr. Fast right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's when, when you when you get into bullying, when you get into uh, suicide, when you get into um, just a lot of these kind of day to day issues that that we struggle with with our youth, with our teens, and even just in society in general, we might find out that a lot of them come right back. To, to this concept we're learning about shame. And joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fast, who is a, a professor, associate professor at the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. And uh, he is also um, the author of a book called Ceremonial Violence, which was a six-year research project exploring why adolescents commit school rampage shootings. And he joins us today to help us understand a little bit more about bullying and shame. Dr. Jonathan Fast, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Talk to us when you, a little bit more about how this kind of cycle of shame where I, because of the shame and the guilt I might feel, I end up kind of attacking or shaming others. How does that end up turning into bullying and violence? And, and how does it end up even, in, I guess, even to suicide? Um. Okay, so if you have, let's take a case of a parent um, who is very aggressive with his son, um, who who beats his son and is constantly critiquing him, and also modeling a kind of uh, problem solving that involves physical violence. Um, so the son wants desperately to use his father as a model for who he wants to be when he grows up. Um, so he has to find someone as a victim where he can do the same thing and also displace the shame he's feeling because he is ashamed of having a father like this. Mm. But at the same time, he, is in, he has imprinted from him like we all do from our parents, both good and bad. Yeah. Um, so he becomes a bully at school. The real problem comes... And this is often the kind of person who goes on to commit crimes and to become a, a criminal. 
um, more often than not. And that, that sounds kind of amazing, but there's good research from Dan Olwes, who's the authority on bullying, and also from a huge Finnish research project called the, the Boy to Man Project, um, which had like 110,000 uh, people involved in it. Wow. And um, they do more frequently become criminals. But these, um, so what happens is they, they are ashamed of having a father like this, and they want to displace the shame, and they find someone. The problem occurs when they find someone who processes their shame by turning it against themselves. So you've got two way, dysfunctional ways of dealing with shame. The bully is attack other. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. Take take my shame out, huh? Take it outward. And then and then there are people who are victims who internalize their shame. And I know, as therapists, we all learn don't blame the victim. Right. But it's not really blaming the victim, but it's more like recognizing people who who make convenient victims who turn the shame inward. And when you get this kind of combination going, that's when you have really terrible things happen. Oh, you know? interesting. Yeah. So 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 one of the things that might lead a person to be more likely to be bullied then mm-hmm. would be if they're one that is going to turn their shame inward. Yeah. And so they might be more they might be picked on more because they're not going to just come out and start taking it out on you. They'll just turn it in and go quiet. Right. And this is this is very common among gay teenagers. Hmm. For obvious reasons, yeah, I think for obvious reasons, um, they turn. They tend to turn their shame inward because they can't talk about it, and they have no no easily available role models. Although things are better now than they were ten years ago. Sure. By a well, but, I mean, it's interesting, but they but gay teens do commit suicide. In one of your articles, I read four times as frequently as straight teens. Right. That was one of the things that made me curious about this. Yeah, and of course, kids who are severely bullied also tend to commit suicide occasionally. Huh. It really, and it, it's interesting. So it really is just about what we do with the feelings that we have, where we feel like we're less than, that we're not good, that we're we're not worth anything. That shameful feeling has to be dealt with, and we can kind of we either got it, we either have to kind of get it out, or we hold it in. Getting it out might turn us into a bully. That's the unhealthy way out. Uh, turning it in might make us, you know, be more oppressed by a bully. Um, what's another healthy way to get it out of us? I guess, like you were saying earlier, is just talk about it. Right. Talk about your really, shame. The healthiest way of dealing with it is talking about it. And this is something that we've known for centuries. And this is where the Catholic tradition of, um, of confession comes from. And also the Jewish tradition of uh, Yom Kippur, where the sins are are placed on on the goat in ancient times. We don't have too many goats around these yeah. days. The sins are placed on the goat, and the goat was sent out of the village. That's right, scapegoated. That's where the expression of scapegoat comes from. But those were both ways of dealing with the shame. Um, now, sometimes confession has become more ceremonial than really active. When people go to their shrinks, and they talk about their shame, and that's that's curative too. Although a strange thing is that people tend not to discuss their shame with their therapist. No, right? It's yeah. too shameful. I mean, because that I call that that's the 
That's the dueling commitment. We always end up talking about something else, but deep, mm-hmm. deep down, there's the other thing. There's the other thing they're more committed to, which is not not relinquishing that private shame. That's right. It's very uncommon for them to talk about it in therapy. But what is more common is to talk about it with a wife or with a loved one. Um, or uh, some people fantasize violence, which is probably not as effective. Um, talking about it with a group, I think, is even even more powerful. Yeah. Although group therapy is, I don't know, it's not highly valued in our society yeah. as much as individual therapy, which is a mistake, I think. Well, it's interesting because it has it really like in AA there is there is some therapeutic, amazing therapeutic you know, uh, release that comes just from being able to go to the group and own your crud for the day. Right. Or just listen to other people whose crud is very similar. Yeah. 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 I guess because, yeah. And, but the real idea too, I guess, is if we can just, if we can say it, it has less hold on us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. If you can, but also you, you have to recognize it and that's where we run into trouble because we have a society where the admission of shame is the admission of weakness. Uh-huh. And none of us want to appear weak. Yeah. I mean, and we do that in our – so one of the keys, I guess, as just a citizen, we need to be able to let people tell their their shame without being, you know, destroyed. Or and, – and even in our marriages, we've got to make it safe for people to share their shame. If they're not safe, they won't share it. And, right. if, and if they know they need to share it. I mean, I, I have a lot of people that – they just don't. Yeah, like you were saying earlier, they just don't want to share this. This is they think this is their one way ticket to complete abandonment if they share well, it. As you probably know, as a, are you a couples therapist? No, I, I no. We just do like uh, skill building, relationship coaching. Uh huh. Yeah. But if you deal with couples, I mean, you yeah. know the, the point they come to therapy is the point where they're no longer sharing things into exactly. So, um, but what we can do as therapists is we can, I mean, a technique that I found very valuable is I ask them to recognize micro shaming events, Hmm. these tiny little events that we get every day that make us feel bad about ourselves. And once you start doing that, you realize that there are a great many of these events. I mean, every time you watch a TV commercial that depicts a person who is similar to yourself, who is in your group who looks better than you do, um, who's funnier than you are, who has uh, better skin than you have or nicer hair, it's sort of a micro-shaming event. And our whole advertising industry is based on this. So there's a lot of micro-shaming coming at us from every direction. And, uh, you know, we sort of develop a thick skin about it, but it's still there. Yeah. And then once you can recognize those, then it's a little easier to recognize the big shame events like getting fired from a job or, you know, or your spouse leaving you, which are really life-shattering events. You bet. It seems like those micro-shaming events, too, end up being, you know, the catalyst of just these kind of day-to-day little fights or these day-to-day little moments where, okay, I feel shame because I just watched that commercial and now I'm going to, you know, yell at my kid. Yeah, or buy the product. Or go, or yeah, or go buy the product. Yeah, be compelled to buy the product. Yeah, I mean there, and you know there are people who feel that they can lose weight by buying dieting books. Yeah, (laughs) it's a little bit magical. That's it. You know what? I felt like I could run a marathon just if I had the right shoes. (laughs) Really? Amazingly, it didn't help because you have to wear them, and then you got to run. 
Yeah, the running is the hard part. It, it, it's such a subtle thing, isn't it? Because if you if you're sitting talking to somebody at a dinner party, and they're they're not even bragging; they're just saying something they did. You right there could immediately have a sense of shame, like, "Yeah, well, I you know I watched 19 Netflix episodes, and right. you wrote well, a book, La Di Da." Yeah. Um, Marx has a a famous quote about how a man feels fine about his home until a person next door builds a mansion. It's true. And after that, he'll never again feel comfortable with his home. It's true. We're so comparative. I guess that's just, we want to be in, don't we? Comparatively, we want to be in. Yeah. So talking, so maybe we should summarize ways of dealing with it. Yeah, let's talk about how we handle it. Okay, so there are the dysfunctional ways, and those include hiding, Avoiding, which is, includes drugs and stuff. Hiding might be things like people who are afraid of leaving home. Yeah. Um, a- attacking others, which you know involves bullying or or random acts of violence, uh, and uh, and attacking yourself, which could be cutting or suicide attempts or actually committing suicide. So I like to consider all of those dysfunctional. Yeah. Better a better solution is telling someone you love about it or talking about it, recognizing it and talking about it yourself using self-talk. Or um, what was the last one? Hmm. I don't know. That'll that'll do for it'll come to me in a minute. But talking to others, I guess too. That means when somebody you know when you see when you see some of these behaviors, somebody staying home a lot, somebody you know getting into drugs or acting out violently or cutting. Or, or you see signs of suicide, we, I guess we just try to open up a discussion where they can be safe and share their pain. Right. And we also have to remember that this kind of change, you know, often the amount of shame that drives a person to being suicidal is a lot that's been going on for years. Yeah. And we have to remember that we're not going to change this in the space of one session or even in the space of the 12 sessions allotted to us by insurance companies. Right. It's going to take a long time. Well, especially because it triggers. If it's triggering kind of in micro moments many times a day, it it probably needs to be vented in micro moments regularly. Well, maybe. That's an interesting idea. And you see this particularly with racial minorities. I mean, African-Americans talk about getting this constant shaming during the day, these very subtle put-downs, um, more than white people do. Yeah, people looking at them weird and, it's, you know, like yeah. they're strange or feared, they're afraid of them. Or... Yeah, a friend of ours who's uh, 18, who's uh, adopted from a Mexican family and looks extremely Mexican, but belongs to this very wealthy family, um, just told me about going into a into a fancy store and which I won't name, and being followed mm. through the aisles. Yeah. And how embarrassing, how deeply shaming that Sure. Was. I mean, isn't that interesting? So societally, we build these, you know, they would just call that risk management in the corporate world. We're just managing our risk. Well, no, you're, you're, out, you're shaming. You're weaponizing. Yeah, but as long as we don't call it shame, we feel stronger. So that's why, I mean, domestic violence is bullying. Right. Yeah, yeah. Racism is bullying, but we have all these other, all these euphemisms for it, right. which is one, one way we keep it hidden. It's yeah. one of it's one of society's deepest secrets. And, and yet, and yet, we're 
And this is why we we still end up being surprised when a Ferguson breaks out or a Baltimore breaks out, which is it's just it's the it's the culmination of shame, you know, magnified. Right. It's just the explosion of being sick of that. Yeah. Now, I'm wondering about Dale Cox, who's the uh, prosecutor in uh, Cato, Paris in Louisiana. They had an article about him in The Times yesterday that said that he wanted to send more people um, he wanted more people to be executed, and he's had the responsible for the largest number of executions oh. in the last uh, decade, I suppose. Yeah. And I wonder if that's a version of a mass murder. Mm. And I hope I don't get into trouble for saying that. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, but I guess it's, whatever it is, it's, it, it might be a response. It's violence, right? It's, it's attacking. It, it is. And, you know, but but it's justified what they do is and we justify it, right? People then justify it in their in the language that would fit the community. Right. Yeah. That's the subtlety. The school shooters also try to justify their their shootings. They almost always leave some kind of document or manifesto Mm. explaining why they did it. And they're all none of them are very convincing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess the, I guess that's the big key to this as as we as we wrap up, um, Jonathan. What would you say? What would you say is the one thing we need to remember when it just comes to shaming and what just the average citizen can do? I can't necessarily do anything about the Louisiana guy, but what can I make sure I'm doing in my world, in my circle of influence, to make sure I'm trying to mitigate my shaming tendencies? Right. Well, we can be kind and supportive to other people and and be civil and not treat people who are different from us. You know, I sound like a like a Sunday school teacher. Yeah, you sound like a pastor. Yeah, but uh, but it's true. I mean, it's just that's what we can do. Yeah, and and, and, and let people belong, you know, and feel safe and belonging, even if they're different. Yes, absolutely. Especially if they're different. Yeah, especially if they're different. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, Doctor. Uh, Doctor Jonathan Fast, really uh, an important, I think, lesson for all of us. And it's very technical, right? Shame's complicated. And so, I mean, even to give it 30 minutes like we did, it's just not enough time. But uh, you might want to go check out the book, Beyond Bullying, Breaking the Cycle of Shame, Bullying, and Violence by Dr. Jonathan Fast. We so appreciate him. Uh, interesting discussion. We'll take a break, come back, do a, a quick little coach's corner on it, a little wrap-up. On shame, folks. We've all got it. We've all got it. And uh, I think the more honest we are about it and the more able we are to just voice it and share it where where we feel insecure and weak, it just seems to loosen the ties. It doesn't have the hold on us that it should. Even the discussion we had here, being able to bring it up, might uh, be able to set some of it free. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Man, what a what a great conversation. When you think about shame, folks, it really is complicated. And but there might be something at the root of this whole idea of shaming that I think Dr. Jonathan Fast may have helped us with. 
So it might simply be that we get, we are in a culture of shaming in our country. And just think how this works. The Republicans shame, you know, certain populations. Conservatives might talk about those that are on welfare and not getting jobs, and, and they use a shaming technique. And th- they do it for a variety of reasons, whatever. Democrats, progressives, liberals, whatever you want to call them, then make fun of – and this is, this is basically how this works – Really strong media on the right creates a big, loud attack. Strong media on the left then makes fun of the strong media on the right and captures videos and clips and makes great money making fun of the conservatives and their just shallow thinking or whatever. Okay, But this pattern goes on and on and on. And the rest of us just sit there and we buy into these battling, these dueling parties. And we just take it as all truth. But deep, deep down inside of all of us, we we might want to just deal with some of our own shame, some of our own beliefs, some of our own guilt. And because deep down, if you really are like a God, a God-fearing person, you don't need to hate any group. And you don't need to be disgusted and frustrated with any group that is that – is, weak and enable and, and, and disabled and poor, you don't need to, nor do you need to hate somebody that seems oppressive. There's no need to hate because the minute you have hate, it's probably going to drive shame. It's going to drive this internal guilt where what is my deal? But if I then get power by putting down people, that seems to help, I guess, with our shame. But really, it's just every night, subconsciously, you're going to know you're still the guy that makes your living making fun of people and putting people down. So the shame cycle, it's very subtle. It really is. And I wish we could just go on forever, and we'll keep bringing it up. But just start looking at yourself. Start looking at where you need to be a little bit more honest about your intentions, about your emotions, about your actual actions and what you're doing in life. Quit just, quit just you know, spewing the line. And quit just being angry and justifying it by, you know, a story you heard somewhere. Instead, get back to your values and your principles, and that will set you free. That's how you get rid of the shame as you live your truth. We'll take a break. Hour number two. It's in the can, my friends. We'll be back with hour number three up next on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can to give you a leg up in this crazy thing called life. It ain't easy, is it? You know, there's just so many things going on. So many things to pay attention to. And yet, not everything matters equally because today, one thing matters above all. Are you ready? If you had to put one thing at the top of your list, today it should be sugar cookies. Yep, sugar cookies. It is uh, sugar cookie day. And we are going to unleash your inner child and celebrate the sugary goodness of this traditional treat. Mm, mm, mm. You know, you just mix a little sugar, butter, eggs, vanilla, baking soda. You got yourself a sugar cookie. 
Today we are celebrating it. Uh, you know, it was brought, by the way, in the 1700s by German settlers that arrived in Pennsylvania. Mm, and where would we be without a good sugar cookie now and then? So happy sugar cookie day. I'm just hoping somehow, somewhere today, a listener sends us some sugar cookies. Or, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll have a sugar cookie party if, you know, upper management decides, hey, today we're going to just break out a bunch of sugar cookies. You know, maybe that could happen if they happen to be listening right now. Just throwing it out there. It's not in my budget or I would do it. I actually don't have a budget. Uh, welcome to the show, folks. Hey, got a great topic coming up. Uh, Jim Citron's going to be joining us. He's going to be talking about how you counsel your children on finding a career, which is a really big deal when you can't really get a lot of times you can't get your kids to do anything that you want them to do. So should should what role should you play in counseling and getting your children on the, the right page for their future, their career, their future success? We found some research that talked about the fact that a father and and kind of a father's career is probably the number one indicator of how and where and how their child will do financially into the future. And some of that might simply be because, you know, how how the father goes might set up and create the conditions for the child. But um, it might also just simply be because you broke some of the barriers. Sometimes our kids need to just see what's possible. I sat last night with my son and we talked about careers. And I said, I asked him, how do you want me to help you without kind of over guiding you? How do you want me to do that? Uh, How do you want me to, you know, gently nudge you the direction that I think you might want to start looking for your career? And his, his answer was profound. It was basically, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, son. Good talk. Good talk, pal. That's so sad. Yeah, good luck then. Okay. Uh, anyway, so then I guess I'm not going to gently nudge. I'm just going to start pounding with a sledgehammer. We need you to do this then, son. It's just interesting. It's it's overwhelming when you think about it. You've got a million choices for what to do with your life and your career. And, you know, forever it was always a baseball player or, a you know, an NBA athlete. Then it was like fight. First, it was probably a firefighter. You wanted to be, well, first it was a ninja. And usually you grow out of that. Ben here still hasn't, but he's... You know, he's big into ninjas, but who isn't? I mean, we're not disparaging. It's, But, you know, he does wear a ninja mask around the office, which is awkward for a few of the new people. And then all of a sudden you grow out a ninja and you want to be a cop or a firefighter. Then you kind of grow out of that and you want to be a ball player and then you grow out of that. And then what? You know, very few people are like, uh, okay, podiatrist. You, know, you, know, you rarely have an eight-year-old boy say, Dad, I want to work with feet. <laughs> Good. Keep rubbing daddy's feet then. That'll help. You want your son to be a podiatrist so he can help you. I would love my son. I keep telling my kids didn't even know what a podiatrist was until two years ago. Now I bring it up all the now time. Now you've uh, he lives at your house pretty <laughs> much, like, right? I always give my hand my kids exercises to strengthen their hands so that they've got really strong hands to massage my plantar. Is that weird? Is that, <laughs> that is very weird. Is that abusive? Uh, who wa- I always walk in and like who wants to rub daddy's feet? They all scatter. For some reason, it just empties the room. <laughs> But it's a great way to get your kids to go to bed or just leave. Uh, Anyway, we'll be having Jim Citron up in a few minutes. He's going to walk us through what we could do to help our kids find a career, kind of know what they could do and what their skills are, their strengths are. We'll get to that. But first, let's go to the person that knew everything about her career the day she was born. No, not till I was five. But anyway. Uh, Five. (laughs) 
The, deba- the debate about the Confederate flag in South Carolina continued on into the night on Wednesday. After 13 hours, the House voted 94 to 20 to remove the flag from state house grounds. State Representative Jenny Horn was very pra- passionate before the vote. Take a symbol of hate off these grounds, and if any of you vote to amend, you are ensuring that this flag will fly beyond Friday. And for the widow of Senator Pinckney and his two young daughters, that would be adding insult to injury, and I will not be a part of it. State Representative Todd Rutherford also spoke, saying the decision to remove the flag was historic. This is an historic day, not just for South Carolina, but for the entire world. We never thought we'd see this day. It's so sad that it took Senator Pinckney and his his death uh, to bring this forward. But again, we, out of tragedy, have created some degree of triumph, and we hope that we've made the families happy. The bill is now expected to move to the desk of Governor Nikki Haley, who says she'll sign it into law. The House narrowly passed a change to the No Child Left Behind law yesterday. The new bill will give school districts greater control over evaluating all aspects of their schools and will not allow the federal government to require certain academic standards like Common Core. In the five-vote margin, there was no support from Democrats, and the bill now moves to the Senate. Baltimore Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake has fired the city's police commissioner. Rawlings-Blake said the recent surge in homicides that followed the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody required a change. The city's police union released a report that claimed the rioting after the death was preventable and that the police department's response was lacking. Following the death of a woman on a San Francisco pier last week, GOP presidential contender Jeb Bush said the federal government should deny aid to any cities like San Francisco that harbor illegal immigrants and sanctuary cities should be eliminated. The suspect in the recent shooting was deported five times to Mexico and was in the country illegally. Two bakers from Oregon have been ordered to pay $135,000 in damages to a lesbian couple. Aaron and Melissa Klein, owners of Sweet Cakes by Melissa, who are Christians, refused to bake a cake for the wedding of the same-sex couple due to their religious beliefs. The Bureau of Labor and Industry say the bakers unlawfully discriminated against the couple, and if the bakery owners don't pay by July 13th, the state of Oregon could place a lien on their home. John Pierre Paul, a defensive lineman for the New York Giants, reportedly had his right index finger amputated yesterday. Pierre Paul suffered the injury during a fireworks accident on the 4th of July. Reports say the lineman also injured his right thumb. The former 2010 first-round draft pick by the Giants was hoping to sign a long-term contract during this offseason. And Matt, last hour, we talked about the friendliest cities in America. Yes. According to Travel and Leisure. All right, you ready for the top five unfriendliest? <laughs> oh, I'm scared. Okay, yes. number five, Boston, due to oh. their intelligence and rudeness. Yeah, nothing worse yeah. than a smart person. No, nothing. Washington, D.C., number four, the power brokers and backroom deal making kind of gives them a contentious vibe. Number three, Philadelphia. Not necessarily the city of brotherly love. Wow. Wow, yeah. Number two, Detroit. The city comes off as noisy and they have lousy drivers. <laughs> Number one. New York. New York City. Is it? Even though it has the friendliest neighborhood in the U.S., Sesame Street, <laughs> they have rude cab drivers and they also rank as the most expensive city yes. in the nation. That's if enough you've to ever make been anybody there, you definitely mad. know that, yes. But it's interesting. It seems like the Northeast has captured... The market. Yeah, definitely. And more out west, Midwest and the west are the friendliest. Yeah. It's because we're spread you, out more. You think it's, I think it's because it's better weather. It might think. be weather, yeah. Or it might just simply be that you're not on top of each other. When you put 
when you're 20 deep, you know. And that's what they said back east when there are so many people and they're so busy. They don't want to talk to people. They just want to move on to the next scene. They've got their headphones in. Don't talk to me. Well, you probably face-to-face impact more people day in, day out just because walking down the street. I mean, I get in my car. I don't have to see anybody. (laughs) You're hoping you don't have to see anybody. I know. And then I I do my show. I just sneak in here, then go to my office, shut the door. Shut the door. I've noticed that door shut all the time. Sleep, sleep, nap, nap, get up, get dressed. Go home. Go home. In my eat car, sugar cookies. eat pound a few sugar cookies, then go see a few clients, just the ones I like, <laughs> and then and the ones you don't. Yeah, the ones I don't, I just ignore. Just ignore. Okay. And then I go home, go to my room, you know, watch a few movies. Go night night. Go night night. <laughs> yeah, and I live in the West. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it, there's something about the Northeast. Nothing. No, hey, we are not down on you. No, but it's just harder to probably be. Nice. And, you know, I think if you lived in Boston during this last winter, you probably were getting to that point. You were very unfriendly. Yeah. In fact, they still have snow melting in Boston. Is that crazy? That is crazy. Oh, that would be so depressing. Send it to Utah. We've said that a million times. Good job. We need some water. Yeah. We we do need some water. Well done, Kathy. Uh, Now you're caught up on the, the nice and the naughty list. Send that to Santa. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Jim Citron will be joining us, and he's going to be talking about what parents should tell their kids about finding a career. It's an important idea. How do we set our kids up to succeed, especially when they're not that interested always in listening to our advice? Anyway, we're going to get the inside scoop on this. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have kids that uh, that need some advice? You know, they need some guidance from their parents on their future, their careers. Have you ever tried to give your child career advice and notice that they don't listen to you? Well, it might be that we just don't know how to do it. We don't maybe know... We don't understand what the kid's going through. So we've asked James M. Citron to join us today. He um, is the author of the book, The Career Playbook, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professionals. And he's here to uh, help us kind of sort out as a parent how we could be guiding our children. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. It's a big deal, and it's so amazing because timing-wise – I have a child right now that's about uh, done. They've graduated from college and they're about to enter into the workforce. She just asked me for advice. I have another son that's about to start college, and I and, and actually two that are about to start college. And I'm thinking, yeah, they don't they don't always listen to me. So what am I supposed to advise here? But it's important because this is the real world now. Totally, we we're in the same boat. So. I've got 25-year-old, 23-year-old, and 20-year-old kids. Yeah, there you go. And and so I get it. But let me let me give a little context because you're absolutely right in the setup. It's hard to advise young people, particularly if they're your kids, yeah. on how to pursue a career, how to get a job, how to think about it. But the broader topic is even though the economy at this moment is pretty good, it's 
very hard getting a job, getting a good job, how to think about a career. When you're coming out of whether it's BYU or any university or in your 20s, getting that first step is really difficult. And it's shifted, hasn't it? Because it's not the same – it's not the same kind of work market or workplace that it that it was 20 years ago. I think everybody knows that instinctively at yeah. this stage. But the statistics absolutely underscore that when you or I were starting out uh, in, in a career or people in their 40s or their 50s or in their 60s, the average number of companies or organizations that you could be expected to work for over your career was three to four. Today, someone coming out of college or university can expect to work for 10 to 20 different organizations. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. So the actual act of managing a career is a skill in and of itself that will help determine how successful someone's going to be. And then the, 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 there's a good news and bad news to that. The good news is that there are genuinely more opportunities out there, more early-stage companies powered by technology that can do more with less, and that's exciting. And young people today are very drawn to the freedom and the change-the-world possibility of early-stage companies. That might change as the, as the economy uh, gets in a more challenged state. Right. But the other, on the other side, companies don't have the resources to invest as much in entry-level programs, graduates, training programs, rotational programs that for many years in many industries created the foundation for successful careers. That just doesn't exist anymore. So it makes that first step extraordinarily difficult. How do you break in? How do you get that first shot? And so this, this book that I wrote, The Career Playbook, has been a real effort over two years to distill tons of research and everything that I've done professionally, which is executive recruiting at the CEO level for the last 20 plus years, Hmm. and applying that to people in their 20s. Oh, wow. Here we go then. (laughs) Yeah. Unleash the Kraken, Jim. I I really want to figure out, so so what do we teach them? What do they need to know? Because that is so amazing to me. 10 to 20 companies... Do you remember it used to be the day, you know, if you could just get on with IBM, yes. you were set. Or a good bank. Or, or a good Parker bank, Gamble, that's right. Or, or a major not-for-profit organization, and, and that just doesn't no. really exist anymore. And so here, here's the way I think about it, and here's the advice uh, that and, – and we can have a special part of this conversation on, on if your listeners or parents, how literally to – Approach the topic with your kids so yeah. that they listen enough. Yeah. But the book actually is is written in a way that speaks in the language of young people in their 20s. And I had a lot of help with that. Again, my own kids and many of their friends. I'm on the board of uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Oh, great. And I lead a lot of career uh, planning efforts there. I was on the board of my own alma mater, Vassar College, for 12 years and led a lot of career stuff there. And then plus we did a massive amount of research over over a year period where I surveyed a team and I at Spencer Stewart, my executive recruiting firm that I, I'm a partner of, we surveyed over 2,500 people in their 20s on go. a whole battery of different questions and things about how young people think about their careers, how they weigh off trade-offs, how they actually 
have gotten jobs, if they've gotten jobs, how they think about the trade-offs between money and lifestyle, a lot of very sensitive questions. But then, Matt, I, I mirrored all of that research with a lot of the client clients that I work with. I've placed CEOs of Intel and Cisco and Yahoo and wow. lots of very high-profile companies and have wonderful access to business leaders across not only the United States but around the world. And I was able to do 100 interviews with CEOs and chief HR officers to try and ask them similar questions about what advice they have. Right, because it has to, to match. People. It has but to match, right? The, the youth, the, the 20-year-old has to have their, their need met and understanding met with the executive that's going to be doing the hiring. If those don't match, this isn't well, going anywhere. Well, I'll tell you what. There are serious areas of disconnect. And yeah. it's not only that the young people don't get it, quote unquote, but genuinely, here's something that I think is really important to point out. And this goes to how you talk to your kids about careers, which is it's really easy for a successful person or an older person to say, to talk about careers as if things were inevitable. And here's how it worked for me. That doesn't really help a young person who's looking forward. The, the point is that careers make sense only in retrospect. They don't make any sense huh. in where you are today looking forward. And all that does, in fact, the more successful you are, uh, the more successful a, a parent is, or, or, or an uncle, or an aunt, uh, or, or a friend, the more, the more anxious it makes someone hearing their story, because their thinking, their little internal conversation is going, well, it was easy for you, but that's you. Right. And by t particularly on issues like money, most, most in, throughout the career playbook, I have these call-out quotes because I had this working group of about 50 young people in their 20s, and I wanted to pepper it in with the anxieties that the young people have today. And again, it's easy for Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, or Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, or Sheryl Sandberg, and all these wonderful people saying, oh, here's what you should do. But um, so the, the, the best quote in the book is from this great young man named Nate. Uh, Nate said, if someone tells me to follow my passions one more time, I think I'm going to get sick. <laughs> so, so that's not helpful advice. Right. Follow your passion. By the way, I gave that advice Facebook. last night, Jim. <laughs> I just told my son, hey, if you do what you're passionate about, you'll make enough money to be happy. And he's, and he's like, okay, Dad. Yeah, okay. It's like, okay, now uh, that, and uh, now how do I exactly. get a job that will actually pay the rent? Right, uh, right. That's, that's the next thing that they're thinking. And so I think the better, the, better, uh, the better advice is to start with kind of an understanding of how careers really work today. The fact that, number one, and I, I, we can talk, and I know we have a few minutes, which is nice. I can give you some really concrete yeah. advice to pass on to, to young people that is proven. And that's the exciting part about this book, because it's a, it's a daunting topic and oh, it's a huge, huge challenge. Right. And thankfully, you know, two years later of all this work and 20 years of executive recruiting, I was able to crystallize it, and it actually works. So thank goodness for that. You bet. But in any case, the foundation is, is how careers really work. And so we've talked about the multiple number, the multiple uh, organizations, so that the fact that career planning skills, career management skills are really important. But here's another thing. There are these fundamental trade-offs that young people need to understand. Actually, CEOs need to understand and parents need to understand, but it, this really is important, which is to say that 
there are three forces at work in careers that are constantly at war with one another. Hmm. And you have to understand those and then be conscious about what trade-offs you're going to make. And those three forces are job satisfaction, money, and lifestyle. Think about that. It's, it's relatively easy to optimize for the quality of work you're doing, whether it's something mission-driven. And again, BYU obviously has all about mission and yeah, service. purpose. Yeah, There's purpose, but you can find that in a, in a company situation and other kinds of roles where it's about learning, contribution, impact, the amount of the, the brands that you're associated with, the people that you're working with, all the good parts about having a role that is fundamentally important and you have high job satisfaction. Yeah. So that's one part. Two, though, is money. Sometimes there are very big trade-offs. It's like, okay, well, I could do something I love and not make a lot of money, or I could do something yeah, right. and sell out and make a lot of money, but am I willing to work in something that is either not making the world a better place or something I'm actually not that interested in or in a culture that's toxic or super competitive or something like that, but yeah. there's often a war there. But then the third factor, sometimes you can find both, but then the third factor usually slides, which is lifestyle. Okay, you, you're passionate about the law, and you're working for a great law firm, but and you're, you're making a lot of money. Oh, yeah, but you have to work 100 hours a week. Right. And okay, you have to go serve on these out-of-town things, or if you're working in management consulting, or lots of the government, you can work on lots of important things, and be passionate about it and have a decent lifestyle. Oh, but you don't get to make any money. So yeah, or it's not conducive that. to family or it's not. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a, that, so that, that's like a Venn diagram is how I see that is. I mean, it's like now all of a sudden you've got job satisfaction, money and lifestyle. And there's got to there's going to be a give and a take. Or like you say, a war between those three areas. So the, the advice that a parent can say is, is Jane. John, understand that there, the, that there are these three forces at work. I call it the career triangle in the book, but a Venn diagram is fine. Oh, yeah. Recognize that you can have it all, but you can't necessarily have it all at the same point in time. Mm-hmm. And recognize that if you're in your 20s, maybe it's the time to invest in your learning and, and not worry so much about the money. Or if you've got $30,000 of student loans, which many American students have, and they have to fight off. They actually have to have jobs that will pay. And if they can work on things that are really meaningful, they might have to say, okay, well, for the next five years, I'm just going to suck it up and I'm going to work you know, weekends or whatever it takes to do that. And recognizing that when you're in your 30s or if you're, if you're at a place where you have young kids or trying to do that, then you can trade off Giving someone the knowledge that those three things exist and that you can actually make conscious decisions turns out oh. to be enormously power, empowering yeah. for young people. So much more powerful than uh, maybe trying to you know, force an idea. You need to be a doctor. Um, it's really good stuff. We're talking with Jim Citron, uh, who, again, is the author of the book, The Career Playbook, Playbook, Playbook. Uh, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professionals. It was published last April. We're going to take a break. Come back and get more ideas for what you could be teaching, should be teaching, to help your kids understand about today's careers. Today's day and age, it's different, folks. Let's give them the tools they need to make sure that they can move on. We'll take a break. More after the break right here with Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back. We are uh, joined by James M. Citron, who is a partner at Spencer Stewart. You can find out about this recruiting firm, Spencer Stewart, at spencerstewart.com. He's a partner there and also the author of the book, The Career Playbook, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professionals. And he's teaching us some of the things we might want to be teaching our children when it comes to their careers. One of the things he's already taught us is there's going to be a, a battle between three forces when it comes to today's career world. And I think this has kind of gone on a long time, though. Job satisfaction, money, how much money you're going to make, how satisfied you'll be with your job, and your lifestyle you'll be able to live. And those three are going to constantly battle. And uh, he's been teaching us, you know, the, the give and the take that needs to be understood by our kids as they're choosing a career. Welcome back again to the show, Jim. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Matt. What what else should we be working on when we're talking to our children about future careers, you know, and being able to be dynamic enough to make it through, you know, 10 or 20 companies potentially? So what I want to do is mention something that I would put as strategic and then get really tactical okay. and give parents some specific advice you can give kids or if any young people are listening now, what are the two most important concrete things you could do tomorrow? Great. So first, the strategic, to put this context, something you, Matt, have written about, talked about, are expert about, and that is relationships. And I have seen over many years, and I've seen this and I've proven it, and it is absolutely the case that relationships power careers. Mm. Relationships power getting good jobs. Relationships power being successful in your job. And relationships power being happy in your job and therefore in life. And yeah. I know you've written about yeah, this. that's powerful though, isn't it? it re- having a relationship mindset is really important. And what that means is that every young person who's thinking about their career hears the advice, oh, you need to network, network, mm-hmm. network, network. And, and I actually am not a fan of the concept of networking because to me that connotes a, you know, take advantage of somebody or be uh, take, take, develop relationships only for your benefit. I am much more in the give and take kind of relationships. And because having an attitude of abundance and the more that you give away, the more that you can look to help others, the more that it comes back to yeah. you. And again, that sounds nice, but a young person thinks like, well, okay, that's nice. When I get a big job, I'm happy to, uh, <laughs> to help others. Right. But it actually is important right from thinking about what is out there possibly and using good personality and using politeness and using uh, proactive skills to get into discussions, asking for advice, offering ideas and having a relationship mindset is really, really I love critical. that idea. I really do. How do how so so what would you suggest that I'm telling my 20 year old or my 23 year old to make sure that they're engaging in relationships now and they're learning those skills? Number one, Never ask someone for a job. Ask someone for advice. People love to give advice. And if you're polite and you're persistent and you're creative, you can get yeah. – people are more connected than they think. Right. And just because your parent isn't a Fortune 500 CEO or some big, big muckety-muck out in the world through your university, through, your, uh, through LinkedIn, yeah. there are other ways to – Get an audience with someone if you're creative and persistent. So get, getting, and getting a dialogue going, asking for advice, 
And then here's now, uh, here's, here's now a really tactical, important thing to say. Yeah. Just so you know, we've got about a minute and a half is all we've got left. Right. Okay. Perfect. Have an elevator speech. Have, have the answer to the question, so Matt, what do you want to do? Huh. And each person whether you're 25 or 55, needs to be able to say in two sentences what they want to do and why. And I'll give an example, and that's what powers the relationships to actually get the referrals that actually lead to the jobs. So I am passionate about the environment, therefore I want to work in a not-for-profit dedicated to combating global warming. Hmm. I've always been passionate about the stock market, so I want to find a job in investing. I'm interested in the political system. So I'm looking to get a congressional internship. One sentence about what you're interested in, linking to one thing you want to do. And that little nugget giving to someone can then say, oh, I just met this great young person named Matt Townsend who's interested in the environment. And he's interested in your your global warming uh, uh, not-for-profit. That's how it works. 50% of the research uh, of our grads surveyed got their jobs through referrals. And that's true all the way up to the CEO level. And it's so, so true because so many times you'll just ask them, so what, what are you thinking of doing? And they're like, blah, blah, exactly. blah. They don't want, they don't know how to articulate that. Yeah. So if there's one thing you can tell that's your brilliant. listeners, can tell their kids, have a two sentence answer to the question, what do you want to do? Rehearse it in front of the mirror and have it come off your tongue instantly and you plant that seed with everybody you talk to, and you'll be shocked yeah. how quickly things come around. And the confidence that it gives you and the power that it gives you when you're in that space. Oh, I love that. And it's just – I love how tactical that was too, James, because it just – it's the answer. It's an answer that they can, that they can look for. Again, go, go check out uh, the book, the Career Play book, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professionals. Go look up spencerstewart.com as well. Folks, those are the tools. There's tools there. And this from people that are in the know that have done this for 30 years, there's there's stuff we can do to be better, to teach more. Let's give our kids a shot at a future in this crazy changing world. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll be visiting our buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, so much uh, to learn, so much to talk to them about. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. myself to stop Sometimes she'll wait till I'm asleep and she'll take the ones that I didn't eat and put those little sprinkly things on top Welcome back I sure do like those Christmas cookies mm, Christmas cookies Sugar cookies today, that's the topic of the day and we're going to now shoot it down to two of the biggest sugar cooker cookie addicts on earth I'm betting on it. Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan, BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Compelling and rich. I have a question entirely <laughs> unrelated to that fabulous song you just brought us in. What? Do you remember the show Remington Steel? Yes, I do. Great show. Fantastic. Pierce Brosnan yes. makes a name for himself, right? Yeah, totally. I feel old because yesterday I made a reference to that show, and I think one person on the staff got it. Are you kidding? And that person was older than me. <laughs> I didn't get it. Was that person in a wheelchair just with an <laughs> IV hanging? You know what? That's a great show. You you didn't get it, Jerem? No. Oh, my heavens. No. 
Remington Still's not that old. Remington Still had Pierce Brosnan and the mom from Everybody Loves Raymond. Yes. He was like a, he was a spy-ish guy. Yes, it, it's it's Magnum PI but with a British twist. Yes. Right? I think it was the pre-Bond. Anyway. I mean, he, he was it got him ready to be the Bond, dude. 82 to 87. I'm looking it up on IMDb. 82 to 87. 7.3, that's pretty good. Yeah, that was Yeah, yeah. I graduated. Five seasons. Yeah, uh-huh. It's huge. I'm sure it's available on Netflix, Jeremy. I know you're a Netflix guy. It's it was a great up and I'll watch an episode. Eighty seven. Uh, <laughs> but I can't believe you remember that though, Spencer. That course, seems out of your league. Of course. Well, I have four older sisters and an there older brother. Yeah. And so like I I grew up you're with the baby. them being in the midst of all of that. And my mom loved that show and she loved Magnum PI. And so like even though I was five or six, you know, and the episodes aired for a number of years after it was oh, yeah. actually over. Oh yeah. It's only it's D V D only on Netflix. Oh. I, I get the streaming only. Oh, it's you have all- to pay extra for the DVD. Yeah, DVDs is one thing, and then streaming's another. Uh, you think why would they not stream that? Come on, come I on, don't know. come on. Anyway, that, hey. so that that's a rant, super random start. But I, it was just no, that's cool. Like, wow, no, I like that I, though. I feel because, old. Well, let me just tell you this. Um, maybe this will make you feel young. Today's sugar cookie day. Is yes. It? Happy sugar sugar cookie day. That's sugar better cookie than day. Scud day. Isn't I know that what Scud was day was really bad. Scud that was day bad. stinks. <laughs> Settle down, Jerem. Lose the attitude. Today's cookie day. Sugar That's cookie more. day. Don't you think Never. that BYU Broadcasting should provide sugar cookies for everybody? We have a great bakery right next door. Uh, let's aim higher. <laughs> Pizza. We could, yeah. <laughs> we could start with sugar cookies, I guess. Let's start with sugar cookies. Hey, are you guys going to be covering this the big, glorious, giant robot battle? Robot? Giant robot? Oh. I saw Pacific Rim. I thought it was pretty good. No, I think they were talking about something different. Uh, this is where the Americans have basically just challenged and the Japanese have accepted the challenge to have a mega robot fight off. There's the, a new show on TV this about is how robots battling, right? Yeah, yeah. it's on ABC. But, well, but this is, I, is this, I think this is even different than that, isn't it? Because this is, these are giant robots. <laughs> what do you mean by giant? Giant meaning these robots weigh 9,000 pounds. And they have twin Gatling guns that fire BBs at 6,000 rounds per minute. This sounds like a terrible idea. 12,000-pound U.S. robot is going to take on the Japanese 9,000-pounder. We've got 3,000 3, pounds on them. Come on! I saw Avengers 2. AI, one of these things goes off. It's all fun and games. Skynet. <laughs> Careful. Don't you think we ought to be covering more of this? Because this is the future, folks. Robotics. BYU Sports Nation? Yes. America? B- and by the way, BYU has got a great history in robot making. Do we? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen robots that they've made and, and, and cars and stuff like that. I've seen a lot in the of engineering robots department. on campus, if you will. <laughs> Those aren't robots. Those are, those are, uh, those those are, are engineer people, students. I live in King Henry. Those are actual people. <laughs> those are actually people I that go to the engineering department. I am from Utah. Oh, I'm speaking you're... about myself. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I just, when I said that, I did not mean to disparage uh, engineering students because I happen to be looking at one they're across way, the board. They're way smarter than I am. <laughs> he, he, he's <laughs> he just, giving you the death he, glance yeah, right now. He just started potting down my mic. A lot of majors at BYU. One is engineering. The other is economics. I'd like, give wow. anything to do either of those degrees. What? Those people make money. Yeah, it's true. Those people are guaranteed. That's something I know nothing of. Those yeah, people get we the get, ladies. We get to talk for a living. That's true. That's true. The, you know, the and sad hope thing. That people care. And yeah, the sad thing is no one listens. Can't say so much for our status with the ladies when we were single, but we get to talk for a living. That's right. See? You know? That's it. So.
You know what? You get a sugar cookie, you can you'll get a lot of ladies. <laughs> what? I'm just telling you. What? It's what sugar is... cookie day. I wish I'd known that earlier. Mm-hmm. But you're both married, so we're all married, so it's good. Hey, are you going to ask the question or not? Okay, yeah, here's the question. So are you guys still doing your show thing? You know, the, the BYU Sports Nation television radio thing? Yes. Is, are you going to do it today? Yep. Well, really, what's what's going on today? Oh, baby. It's <laughs> uh, it's going to get interesting in here. What? So Taysom Hill's Heisman hype just got some serious national backing from a guy named Bruce Feldman, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago. Interesting. He uh, He's one of the premier college football writers in the country. And but I mean he he has Taysom at fifty to one odds to win the Heisman. He has him as the second best bet, which is cool. Wow. Which is like okay, I yeah. like that. He he likes his outside shot to win the Heisman. But in his little paragraph about Taysom, he says, if BYU goes four and zero in September against Nebraska, Boise State, UCLA, and yeah. Michigan, he'll be in the mix. But then he says, it's not far fetched that BYU would go four and zero in September. Mm. What? Not far fetched. Wow. I mean, I, I like the blue goggles. Yeah, yeah. But, but you for know, a national guy to say that, it's like, wait a second. See, see it's, but that, you know what? It's, it's not far-fetched. Are you buying in? I'm totally buying in. I done drank the blue juice. <laughs> the blue Kool-Aid from uh, Star Wars. After your sugar cookie. Episode exactly. Four. I'm so hyped up right now. But you know what? Seriously, they run that table. He's going to get so much press, especially if we're winning because of his legs. Man. I'm telling you. But he'll break his legs if he uses them too much. Okay, do you, okay, Coach Matt give, says just that. Just to give you an idea. First of all, let me preface with this. Betting is wrong. Totally. But we had one of our guys, Greg Welch, one of our BYU Sports Nation followers, tweet us the numbers that if BYU won those first four games, by the way, they're underdogs in all four of those games, mm-hmm. with the current line and odds, if you put a $100 bet on BYU to win all four of those games, not just win, but just cover the odds, yeah, cover the, the, the number, you would win 15000 plus. Wow. So, again, are you sure it's not far-fetched? <sighs> well, according to Feldman, it's not. It's interesting, isn't it? This it is, is very. Far-fetched. You know what? You guys need it's to in- talk about this on your show today. That's a great idea. Have okay. you guys thought about that? Mm, perhaps. That's a great. That see, there's yeah. a good hook right there. <laughs> we'll decide if we're going to talk about that in the next five minutes. And can you also tell me to do that? Figure that out in the next five minutes. <laughs> also, if, are you guys going to give the recipe to the blue juice soon? Because I want to know how what how to make the special punch that makes me so love BYU. Listen to BYU Sports Nation every day on That's BYU it. Radio. Blue Kool-Aid. That's all it takes. You start to produce blue juice in your veins. Mm. Okay. I guess that's good. Blue runs deep. <laughs> What's the campaign? BYU yeah. Sports is running this fall? Blue runs deep. Blue runs deep. I like that deep in voice. A, in a world. <laughs> Where blue runs thin, it runs thick and deep. At hey, Remi- we'll end with this, we'll this Matt. Yeah. Okay. Taysom Hill is Captain America. Think about that. Mm. In more ways than one. I always thought Jerem was, but whatever. Listen, he not only looks like him. I ain't got no strength. <laughs> but but he brings hope and leadership to the BYU Cougars like yes. Captain America does. One man, one team. This fall, BYU Same. football is now <laughs> rated R. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, it's funny. A lot of people would produce these segments. Nope. Not us. Not us. We like Literally to improv. zero conversation between us leading up <laughs> so to awesome. our conversation. Remington Steel. That is so good. Look, we've milk. gone everywhere to sugar cookies, to blue juice. Okay. Have a great show, gentlemen. Gentlemen. Thanks, you're awesome. Goodbye. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thanks, deep voice man. 
Good stuff. Man, that's the funnest. That's my funnest segment of the entire day, every time. Because I never know what we're going to talk about. You just play it by ear. Here's the deal. You know we like to end the show with a little a hero story. Our hero today, Townsend's hero, is one 25-year-old woman that has fed over 570,000 homeless people through a business that she set up on her own. While Komal Ahmad was still enrolled in college at the University of California at Berkeley, a homeless man approached her begging for money to buy food. Rather than turn him away, she invited him to have a lunch with her. And uh, as they sat down and ate, the man explained his story to her. He was a vet who had recently returned home from Iraq, but whose life had taken a few unexpected turns. This bothered Ahmad so much that she decided to do something. Within a few months, Ahmad had set up a program at Berkeley that allowed the school's dining halls to donate excess food to the homeless shelters. That program then expanded to 140 other campuses across the U.S. in about three years, Ahmad now runs her own nonprofit service, Feeding Forward. How cool is that? Here's how it works. When companies or events have surplus food, they tap the Feeding Forward app, provide the details of their donation. A driver is then quickly dispatched to pick up the food and deliver them to the food banks. Since Feeding Forward launched in 2013, the service has recovered more than 684,000 pounds of food. That means it's fed over 570,000 people. Moving forward, Ahmad says she hopes to expand the company to more than just the Bay Area and have locations in Seattle and Boston. Ahmad, you are my hero. Hero of the day for the Matt Townsend Show. Folks, one person opening up their heart, looking in the eyes of somebody in need, not judging them, not shaming them, just understanding their need and then figuring out a solution in their circle of influence. That's the makings of a hero. We all have that potential. Thanks for joining us, folks. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, giving you the ideas, the tools you need to uh, to be the heroes in your life and your family's life. Make sure you uh, you always remember how important you are to the people around you. They're watching you. So take care of yourself. And until tomorrow, make it a great one.